Turn with me to Psalm 56. The relevance of the Psalms in almost any age, almost any situation, goes beyond description. When people are distressed, when people are in trouble, when people are down, this seems to be the go-to for many, many people. Not just this particular psalm, but the psalms in general. Verse 1 says, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He, fighting daily, oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. Now here's the verse that I want to preach on. This is also the title of the message. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Now we sang this in another form from another psalm just a few minutes ago at verse 4. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. We'll stop there. The title of the message, What Time I Am Afraid, I Will Trust in Thee. I have shared with you many, many times that the only book that does not confuse me for whatever that good reason may be is the Bible. Theology can often confuse me as I read theologians who draw conclusions that I can't quite grasp how they studied this book and drew those conclusions. Of course, authors on other subjects sometimes confuse me as well. But I'm very grateful that whenever I open my Bible, God's Bible, it just brings such comfort. Not just comfort, though. It brings, uh, if I could be permitted to use this word, it brings a type of energy. In fact, that's a Greek word that underscores one of the words for power. In our New Testament, energeo is the Greek word where we get our English word energy. I'm very grateful that whenever I break this book, I open, and it's been always, and it honestly, it really doesn't matter. I don't do what I told you not to do, play Bible roulette. Just, Lord, speak to me and do this, because you may come upon the verse that says Judas went out and hanged himself. Yeah. Oh, Lord, that's not it, and you do this, you, and then you come upon the verse that says, go and do likewise. So that's not a good way to study the Bible, not a good way to get an answer from God. But in my case, all I have to do is just open the Bible, and already I just sense comfort, and I start to read, and it doesn't matter what I'm reading on. The judgments of God coming through Jeremiah, the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter, it just comforts me. I'm grateful for that. Because we live in a world of chaos, not just physical chaos, that's pretty obvious, but we live in a world of intellectual chaos. Sometimes I say to myself, I don't understand what this person's talking about. And I really don't. Then I'm persuaded that neither do they. They don't know what they're talking about either. That's why I'm confused, because they're confused. So we have not just the physical chaos, the murders, uh, another police officer shot last night in Philadelphia. We have intellectual chaos, and we have, obviously, moral chaos. We live in a world of chaos, physical, intellectual, or of the soul, and of the spirit. And as we sang from the 119th Psalm, thy word, or David says here in verse 4, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That has been my experience, getting close to half a century of being in the book, doesn't matter what's going on in my life. Doesn't matter what's going on in the world. This always brings me respite. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. 
Now to begin, why is David saying that? What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. It's a general statement, but it's specifically related to people fighting against him and not to be afraid of what flesh can do unto him. So Psalm 56 is written at the same time of Psalm 34. When David is being pursued by the king, first king of Israel, Saul, for his jealousy and envy and so on. And Saul is trying to kill David, but not theoretically. Saul made attempts to kill David. So David is running from his own country, running from his own king, or from the king. And he finds himself in a place called Gath. Gath is the city where Goliath and his family came from. So when we talk about being between a rock and a hard place, that's where David is when he wrote Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. He has his own, well, some of his own countrymen, right, who are going to endorse the king. And then he has the Philistines, and he's in the city where he killed their hero. I, for one, when I read these stories of David, of the apostles, of even the children of Israel in the wilderness, I don't have the attitude of, well, look at these people. Look how unbelieving they were. Because I know that that same type of unbelief resides in my own heart. Things get tough, you start to complain. Things get tough, you start to think, we'll say, just say negative. Unbelief. God said this, but this is what's happening in reality. David is being pursued to death by the king, and he flees, and he winds up in Gath, where he had killed the hero of the Philistines. So this is, as you know, the background, some of you do. This is where he comes up, he devises a plan to pretend that he's crazy, foaming at the mouth, dribbling on his beard, scratching at the door. It actually, in one manner of speaking, we could say it worked. Because the king said, look at him. You see, the king was told by his leaders, he said, this is the one they were singing about. And this is David. I mean, concerning Saul, the women were singing, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. That's what made Saul jealous and began a pursuit to kill him. And it's odd that the Philistine, at least the leadership, were saying to their king, this is the one they were singing about, that he's mightier than Saul. That's a rock in the hard place. That's when you start to think that there's no deliverance. That's when you start to say to yourself, everything goes wrong. Why me? This is part of human nature. It's in all of us. Why me? Well, why am I going through these difficulties? Why do I have these hardships? How come I'm always the one? Well, to begin with, you're not always the one. You're one of many of us that have the same thoughts and the same feelings and so on, same temptations as everybody else. I hope that that's a bit comforting to you, that you're not alone. Never think that you're the only one that ever has a doubt. Never think that you're the only one and you say, I'm a Christian and I shouldn't be fearful, but you are. Or let me say something else too, which is very important. You're down, you're depressed, and you've been taught by somebody on a television set or in a book that Christians don't get depressed. Well, number one, read the scriptures. Some of the mightiest men of God in here suffered from at least periodic depression. Saul fell even much worse, but he's a different, a different person. The greatest figures of the Bible suffered from what I will just loosely call anxiety and depression, at least periodically, just like you. 
Now, I've heard teachers say in the past these truly uninformed statements, Christians don't get depressed and Christians don't have anxiety, and that's simply not true. We all do. We all have fears and doubts and some measure of a depression from time to time. And some of those periods can last weeks or months. I've had them. Times when I'm just anxious. Sometimes I don't even know why I'm anxious or feel anxious, I should say. Sometimes I'm down and I don't even know why I should be down. I just want to bring some relief to you that came in here today and you're a bit down or maybe you're a lot down or you're fearful, or let me mention grief. Why bad things happen to good people is really the question that Job puts forth in his book. Because he was living a righteous life. How do we know that? Because God said so. He was living so righteous that God bragged on him to Satan. Where have you been, Satan? I've been going back and forth throughout the earth. God says, you see Job? And Satan makes a case and he says, well, sure. Sure, he serves you. Sure, he's always making sacrifices morning and evening. And sure, he praises you and he sings a lot because you've hedged him in and I can't touch him. I'm just paraphrasing it here for you. And so Satan asks that the hedge be taken down. Let me have at him for just a little bit. He'll curse you. So God gives Satan permission. He says, all right, you could have at him for a little bit, but you can't kill him. Then you know the rest. In a moment, he loses his business. He loses his children. And then friends come to comfort him, and there were no comforters. They're all trying to convince him, listen, you've sinned. And we know that you've sinned because look at your life. You're not blessed. Now, let me just say this as a parenthetical statement. Isn't that pretty much the message that we hear in America's pulpit today? Look at you. You don't have any money because you've sinned. You don't have faith. Look at me. <laughs> From the guy taking money out of the offering plate, getting a new Learjet. You can't drive an old used Learjet. Who can fly an old Learjet? Got to have a new one. It's pretty much the same message. Yet we know from the scriptures that Job was living in such an upright fashion that God bragged on him, which brought on this great trial. Then he gets sicknesses and he has boils and he's scraping them. And his marriage isn't in good shape now because his wife is saying, just curse God and die. That's, That's a problem when you have a marriage like that. Your Christian wife is saying, you old coot, just curse God and die. You did this to yourself. Then your friends come along, and they're saying pretty much the same thing. You're in the condition that you're in right now because of your sin against God. Now, let me just hasten to say one thing. There are things we bring on ourselves through sin. But in Job, that was not the case. Why do the righteous suffer? Why are we subject to fears and doubts and depressions and grief? Why do we lose children? Why do we bring our children to the sanctuary and teach them the word of God and pray over them and all that, and then they fall prey to drug addiction or they get pregnant out of wedlock when they're teenagers and so on and so forth? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, it's not for me to solve that problem philosophically. It's simply to state that it does, that it does. And again, just so this is in balance, when things are happening in my life, the first person I look at is myself. What am I doing wrong? But after, if I take a good evaluation and I really look and I can't really think of anything, doesn't mean there's not something there. I just can't really think and find of anything. I just realize that these things happen and they happen to believers. They happen to people of faith. It happened to David. He did the right thing 
He did the brave thing when he took down Goliath. And for his service, the king says, I'm going to kill you. He flees over here to the Philistine camp, winds up in Gath, and he says, we're going to kill you. Now, we don't have a lot of, always a lot of explanation. Psalms do a great job, though, of why, you know, Lord, why am I suffering? But we don't have a lot of what's going through the heart of these great patriarchs of the Bible. But if you think of them as just people like you, they must have had these thoughts. I mean, beyond what's written. And it's encouraging to me to understand that David, you know, David is David. I mean, Abraham is Abraham. But it's encouraging to me to understand that at the end of it all, they were just flesh and blood. And we're encouraged in James chapter 5 to remember that Elijah was a man of like passions. And when he prayed, the rain stopped for three and a half years. And when he prayed again, it began. And he was basically the Bible saying he was just like you. I think that this should be encouraging to the point that we then do what these patriarchs did. And that's the reason they're in the Bible. They learned how to overcome their fears. Not deny that they had them, but to overcome them. There's not a single person in this room, not one. If you say, I don't have any fears, I don't have any fears at all. You're just really out of touch with reality, or you're lying. There's only two choices, because everybody has them. I have them, you have them, we all have them. But the question is, who will overcome them? That's the difference. That's what makes the difference. So I'll say this for the third time. If you look around here in this room, you're going to find people that are just average, ordinary people that have bad things happen to them, find themselves in positions between a rock and a hard place where there seems to be no real good solution. Can't go back to Saul. And now you can't go forward with the people you tried to make an alliance with after you killed their hero. So David says this at verse 3, what time I am afraid. He's telling us. He's got concerns. He wouldn't have acted like he did. And we're going to talk about this just a little further in a minute. He wouldn't have acted scratching in the door, spitting on his beard, acting like he's crazy, which actually got him out of the jam, if we take God out of the picture for a moment. He didn't walk in nobly, as we would expect. Again, if we were writing the book and say, you know who I am? I'm David. I took down your hero. Make me a place and treat me the way you should. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen to you. That's how heroes in Hollywood are made, in novels, but not in real life. All of a sudden, this great man of faith has some doubts about his future. Let's talk about Goliath for a moment. According to our Bible, Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall. And just to check on that, because if you do some research, you'll see there's a little debate about that, his height. I checked, I don't know how many translations, and they all had the same height. Nine feet, nine inches tall. You know what that means? That means he would not only be in the NBA, he would own the NBA. At nine foot nine, they give him the ball, he just goes, he don't even jump. He's nine feet, nine inches. That means at a 10 foot rim, it's only basically here. And he just, he's the center. He don't even jump. He just takes the ball, throws it down the court, boom. They win. Plus he's huge. I mean, he's a big man. Nine feet, nine inches tall. Some scholars estimate that his armor, if you take the spear, the shield, the sword, the helmet, everything, could have weighed up to 700 pounds. It's a big man. And David comes along. Now, listen to me. David is sent on an errand by his father because the brothers are in combat. This is real combat. They're on the battlefield. And the plan from the Philistines was, why should we all fight? 
Goliath has been a champion for years, and he's been a soldier, an intrepid soldier, since he was young. Why should we all fight? Just send me a man. Now notice, the people of God, right? They're in trenches, and we have no volunteers. But when you think about it, if you know your Bible, Saul was the tallest man in Israel. And, generally speaking, leaders in the military go out with their troops. So one would think that Saul would say, put my armor on. I'm the tallest here. He wasn't going. So then he coaxed the other soldiers saying, listen, whoever goes and fights this guy, I'll give my daughter. They're all saying, she may be good looking, but she ain't that good looking. I ain't going to fight this guy. Now David comes along with bread and some supplies for his brothers who aren't doing anything either. And they begin to chide him. He's just a young kid. He said, we know why you came down here. You came down here to see the battle. You came down here to see the war. But David is struck with the attitude of his own people and with the audacity of Goliath, who's cursing and blaspheming their God, Jehovah, our God. So David, as you know, again, the story, David volunteers. He's a little kid. And Saul, the king, because nobody else would go, finally decides to, all right, let the kid go. Tries to put on Saul's armor. It's too big. Can't win like that. You can't win with somebody else's armor. Testimonies are great, but you can't win in life by somebody else's testimony. You've got to have your own. You've got to go to God for yourself and pray for whatever it is that troubles you and be delivered yourself so you have a testimony. That's your armor. Because the book is the same for all of us that read it. It doesn't change. But what does change from person to person is someone that raises up their hands and says, I want to share a testimony. And then if you have one, two, and a dozen, and three dozen, you have many years of testimony, you become like Caleb, who's at 80 years old, and asking Moses, I want to go take that mountain. He says, I'm as strong now as when we came out of Egypt. Moses wasn't a passive man either. 120 years old, and he still didn't wear glasses. In any case, David goes out, as you know, and this man is defying Jehovah, the one true God. So picture this. You have something that looks like this. Goliath over here, David down here, and he takes five stones, and he wouldn't even need four of them. And he puts them in a sling. Now, to be fair and also accurate, you know, if you ever watch shepherds today, they could be exceptionally accurate with these stones, with a sling. Plants it right in the middle of his head. Because prior to that, David said to Goliath, you come to me with a spear and a sword and a shield. I'm coming to you. Listen, he didn't start announcing this new weapon that the Israelis had. He said, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I'm coming to you. We'll put it in our parlance. I'm coming to you in the name of Jesus. And Goliath was laughing prior to that. Remember, he says, what am I, a dog? Come on, I'll finish you or cut your head off. And it wasn't... Imagine this little boy when he came with the head of Goliath. I mean, the head had to be just huge. And he cut his head off. A little boy with bread in his basket. This is not how we expect things to turn out that now, shortly after, not that long after, he's pretending that he's crazy in front of the king who had this hero at one time in his own community, Goliath. You see, once again, our way of thinking is that this David, he just never has a problem. Again, I just reiterate he goes to Gath. He didn't walk in nobly, as we would expect, and looks straight in the eyes of the king. He says, you remember who I am? I killed your hero. But that's not what we see. And I want you to be encouraged to understand that the people of the Bible were just like you, as relatively speaking. 
I mean, they were chosen to write the Bible. They're peculiar, special in that respect. They were still just people, and they had their fears and anxieties and depressions and doubts. But the difference, once again, they didn't live in them. They overcame them. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. I will put my trust in thee. And so here we have a situation. And I want to just give you these couple of things here today. Um, Having said what I've already said, concerning fear, number one, it's not a question of if you're going to have fear. It's only a matter of when. You say, well, that's not encouraging. Well, we first have to be realistic. Look at, we could look out that window and say, I don't know what everybody's talking about. It's just really going well in the world. We are not living in times that are going particularly well. So we have to be in touch with reality. Even though we understand, and this is how we live by faith, that God has said these times would precede his coming to establish the kingdom. So that's how we get through. But in the meantime, we don't deny the fact that these are difficult, dangerous days. That can, and is, by the way, inspiring in many people anxieties, depressions, grief, and so on. So first of all, concerning fear, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Number two, it's not a question of what type of fear you're going to have. It's just a question of you're going to face. In other words, this fear is not for me. I'm not afraid of that. And you are. And then you say, I tell you something I'm anxious about. And you say, what are you anxious about that for? There's nothing to be afraid of. So what I'm saying, secondly, is that for all of us, it's not a question of this that concerns me. It doesn't concern you at all. And what doesn't concern me, you're just deathly afraid of it. But it's in us all. That's the second thing. Then the third thing is something I'd like to give to you, time permitting, is fear belongs to God, not man. And that's the solution. General Patton, obviously an outstanding American general, soldier in the First World War, commanding general in the Second World War. He said this, if we take the generally accepted definition of bravery as a quality which knows no fear, I have never seen a brave man. All men are frightened. And then he says this, the more intelligent they are, the more they are frightened. If I meet somebody, and I did uh, a week or so back, I think he's the first person I've ever met. And I've met a lot of people. I said, you know, well, he's got a problem with his neck and his shoulder. I said, well, you know, stress will do it. He says, I'm not stressed, never stressed. And I told him, I said, okay, you're the first person I've ever met. I don't believe him. I still don't believe him. But that's what he told me. That's not average. That's not normal. Who doesn't get stressed? Everybody gets stressed. I don't know what he's talking about. And I would say to you that in the times in which we live, if someone can say they're really unconcerned about the future, then I would say that they're just simply not intelligent enough to be fearful. Now, you hear you're intelligent enough to be fearful, then you must be intelligent enough not to fear things or men, but God and God alone. So it's not a question of if you're going to be afraid or I'll throw in depression, some other things, grief. It's just a matter of when. Bad things happen to good people. And that's the way it has always been. In Patton's speech to his men, he said, you are not all going to die. Only 2% of you here today will die in a major battle. Death must not be feared. Death in time comes to all men. Yes, every man is scared. In his first battle, if he says he's not, he's a liar. Some men are cowards, but they fight the same as the brave men. Or they get, and he has an adjective in there, 
or they get blank slammed out of them. Watching men fight who are just as scared as they are, the real hero is the man who fights even though he is scared. That's General Patton. Homeric, if you've never heard the term related to the Greek poet Homer. Homeric, the underlying Greek word for Homer, is where we get our English word for hero. Homeric means something that's epic, something that's truly done. With that in mind, we hear George Patton speaking from the past, and we hear him saying that there's no such thing as a soldier facing combat that's not afraid. It's just the ability to fight through your fear for the victory. Go back to Homeric. The definition is the values were physical prowess, courage, fierce protection of one's family, friends, property, and above all, one's personal honor and reputation, Homeric. I say this a bit tongue-in-cheek. There's also a part of me that's very sincere about this. I could never be a politician, maybe locally. I could never be a politician because it seems, the appearances, that they will put anything before their desire to be in the limelight, their desire for power, and I don't mean all, obviously it's not all, and the fact that they go in, some go in, relatively without wealth and come out with tremendous wealth. For me, I could not prostitute myself or my honor and my reputation to say things I don't mean to be here today and wanting you to vote for me. I'm telling you, you're going to have a chicken in every pot. Or depending on the crowd, you'll have pot in every chicken. <laughs> Just depends on who you're speaking to. That's a prostitute. That's my view of politics. Even these people in the media, they act like prostitutes. Most of them say what they have to say in front of them. For me, I would tell the director, the floor director, or the owner, whoever, I can't say this. Put somebody else in front of the camera. I'm leaving. Homeric. And that's what God wants to instill in you. Not, you know, uh, people are going to write a book about you type of hero, but be heroic in the way that you live your life. Because again, you're facing the same exact fears that I face, the same obstacles, oh, they vary, I understand. But we all have obstacles, we all have fears, we all have moments of depression, of weakness, and so on. All of us. It just depends on who is willing to say, I am not giving up in this fight. I am not giving in. I am not going to give in either to the pain or to the pressure or to whatever, whatever it is. And David gives us the basis here. What time I am afraid, not if you're afraid, when you're afraid. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God, I will praise his word. Now that, my friends, is faith. Because again, I say this to you all the time. Here you have David those of us who are biblically literate, which I assume is everybody, most everybody, we already know how his life ends. But he didn't. Abraham didn't know. Abraham wasn't there when Jacob gave birth to, well, his wife gave birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. He wasn't there. But he was told that this is going to happen. And he believed God. He believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. I've not seen heaven. But I know whom I believed. That I will see heaven. And that is what keeps me going. Quickly, I want to just tell you that if anybody who goes into the ministry for glory and fame is crazy, crazy, or they're just looking for your money, they're just picking your pocket, that's it. Real ministry is rough, it's difficult, it's challenging. Local pizza place down here some, I don't know, 20 years ago, went in there, I used to go there and get lunch, get pizza. 
knew the pizza guy, guy that owned the place. And one time he said to me, boy, it must be nice to work once a week. <laughs> I said, yeah, it is. Went in there a couple of weeks later, order was going to order a slice. I said, I'm going to tell you something right now. If you say anything about what it must be nice to work once a week, I'll pull you right over the counter. That'll be the end of that. No, he was kidding. I was kidding. You want to be in the ministry? That's what you say. You know, if God is calling you, that's great because you'll have my support. Let me tell you something. You get ready for a very difficult life. I said, well, you look kind of happy all the time. That's because I'm all dressed up with a shirt and tie and in front of you. And plus there's a camera here. And I'm recording on the radio. What am I supposed to do? Cry? But it makes you tough. And life makes you tough. And life has always been tough for everybody. Starting with Adam and Eve and all the way out, it's been tough. Read your history. I mean, just general history, world history. It's been tough for everybody. Tough for everybody. But the time that you are afraid, what you do is you put your trust in those things that you have not seen, which is the essence of faith. Faith is the substance of things not seen. That God will come through for me once again. God will deliver me again because he's delivered me in the past and so on. That's a testimony. That's where you are wearing your own armor, not somebody else's. It's not a question of if, it's only a question of when. Secondly, fear, if it's not this, then it's that. I told you about my anxieties about going to the dentist, didn't I? Yeah. I got over it, but barely. And I remember right here when the dentist's office used to be right there before he moved. I remember sitting in the chair and all of a sudden out of nowhere, some of you are gonna know what I'm talking about, I got hit with a panic attack and it was growing. I'll be right back. And my mind was picturing, you know, chainsaws and <laughs> you hear that and all that stuff. And my mind just, just went on me. And all I could think of was screaming and running out. But I said, gee, that's going to be kind of embarrassing. So I used the techniques, meditation and word and all that stuff, and I got through it. He said, oh, you laugh. I've been going to the dentist since I was a little kid. It doesn't frighten me. Okay. But if we talk long enough, I'll find something that does frighten you. All we're going to do is talk, and I'll pick up on it. And you better believe I will accent it until... <laughs> You are having a major panic attack. Major. Well, you laughed at me. You see, and by the way, in this respect, we can encourage one another. Fear, it's either this or that. That's what I mean. It's either this or that for every one of us. And so the way we can encourage each other in that respect is to give reasons to people when they're afraid of something you're not afraid of, of why they shouldn't be afraid may not completely work, but it's encouragement. It's the Barnabas spirit. It's encouraging. And that's what we're called to do, by the way. We're called to encourage one another. We sang some songs earlier. I've been listening to one hymn like all week long, and I sent you the link in my email. There is a fountain. It talks about blood, filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners washed beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. And sinners washed beneath the flood Lose all their guilty stains. I've been hearing that. I've been listening to it over and over again for a week. Why? Because all have sinned. And I'm just being truthful with you now. You see, it's the time for truth. I find it disturbing, not when we make judgments based on doctrine, which is important, but when we become judgmental, especially in a local congregation, and I have all these petty things that go on. I could split a church right down the middle, then side to side as well. And I always remind you this because it's obviously impressed upon my mind. That when Christ forgave you, he forgave the people around you as well. You're no better than them. And in some cases, the people with the 
well, the most talkative, we're the worst. And we cannot become Pharisees. We must understand and remember, I sinned, you sinned, we all sinned, and the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, washes all of us from our sins. And with this respect, we treat each other kindly. On my subject, we can encourage each other against fear. For 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God hath not given unto us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And that, my friend, if you look at Timothy, was the problem that he had. He was a pastor, and he was a bit shaken by some things. And Paul says, hey, don't be ashamed of me and my chains, that I'm getting arrested a lot, in jail, out of jail. Don't be ashamed of me and my chains. Stir up the gifts that are in you, for God has not given unto us the spirit of fear, but the power of love and a sound mind. We are all the same. The difference will be, now and in the future, who overcomes their fears. Or just as an aside to this message, who overcomes their attitude of superiority? Get rid of that. Can't get rid of all your fears. They're lodged in your flesh, lodged in your brain. Uh, in time, you get rid of them. That's what I meant to say. Because David here, well, if you look at it this way, David is spitting on his beard, clawing at the door, saying all kinds of craziness, and writing a poem at the same time. It doesn't seem to make sense, but that's human nature. Because inside of us, there's always this tug of war. And it's not just fear, it's all types of things. It's sexual lust, it's whatever, whatever, you know, people go through, we go through. There's always this dynamic. Which one is going to win? And we get to choose which one is going to win. We get to choose which one. We're told in the Bible not to fear the things other people fear. You say you have Christ. I don't doubt that you do. We are taught not to fear what other people fear. And a word to the wise is sufficient on that. You, what is the biggest fear that most people have? It's public speaking. At least it's in the top ten. If I were to grab one of you, any of you, and say, I want you to come up here and finish this. Well, some of you would do a fair job. Most of you would get instant type of um, psychological dysentery and just lose it. You would just lose it. Especially if people like, you know, one of my old school teachers got in touch with me and she listens to some of my teachings when she can. Remember, she was my teacher. She's a Catholic nun. And she says, you know, it just amazes me that you could talk for an hour like that, you know, and I do it routinely. Because for some odd reason, this bears up my point, for some odd reason, I never had that fear. When I was young, when she was my teacher, they would prick me for the leads in the plays because I can get up there and sing in front of everybody and just didn't bother me. But mention the dentist. And I was crawling out the door, spitting out my beard. If it's not this, it's that, and we all have it. But we all have the potential to overcome it in the name of Jesus Christ. What time I am afraid I will trust his word, though I don't know what my future has in store. I know what my past has been. And this has been no picnic. And I don't know what the future holds, but I know one thing. I've been trained. Every night when I go to bed, when I'm going to sleep, I thank God for his training in my life. The hardships, I mean. And there's been a lot. A lot of hardships. All types of things. I keep thanking him for the training. Why? Because every time he's training in my weakness, he's getting stronger. And he's getting stronger in my life. So that David would eventually go on to write that he taught me how to bend a bow of steel with my arms. That's the work of God. That's someone who overcomes. Let me ask you this question before I start to wrap this up. Hey, what are you going to do 
You see, we can use language that's clever. Well, I'm not afraid, I'm just scared. I'm not angry, I'm just mad. Really? You just said the same thing. The question for you today, are you going to overcome? And not try to use language that glosses it over in such a way that you keep making yourself look good like you're not afraid. You're afraid? Admit it. You don't have to admit it to everybody around you, but at least admit it to God. And say, what time I'm afraid, I will trust what's written in your book. And despite your feelings, and despite what's the chaos in your own brain, despite all of these things, you will say, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God, I will praise his word, for God is not a man that he should lie. God cannot lie. Not that he would, he might, but he won't. He cannot because he's God. John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Right here, I always say this, you know, because of where we're situated. We're here nestled in the foothills of the Adirondack Mountains, six million acres of wilderness. Basically, it's nowhere. I mean, it's nowhere. And God can take nowhere and make it somewhere. God can make this, and I'm not saying that it's not, but God can make this the oasis. I wrote to you in my email, I put an extra verse in there about the Sabbath. Call it a delight. I look forward to it. And today is the one day I work. <laughs> well, I'm at work right now. And it's a delight to be with the brethren of like precious faith. And to hear the songs, as you know, I've done this for years, just let's sing it, just the voices, sing it a cappella. To hear the voices singing is encouraging. It's invigorating, it's renewing. Which, by the way, and I just want to say this to you. I understand when you're sick, you're going to watch the live feed. And I'm grateful for that. But that's not why that's there, just to stay home. I mean, people are sick and they're watching by live feed, so don't feel guilty. I'm just simply saying, ah, you don't have to go today. Pour another cup of coffee and a bagel. You can watch Pastor Ray. That's not why it's there. It's designed to reach out to people who can't get to a church, not only to this church. They can't get to any church. And I know because I hear from them. Well, we come together. Public speaking has always been the number one fear of many people. In 1801, when Thomas Jefferson had given an inaugural address, he wrote it out. Why did he write it out? Because he was so smart? He wrote it out because he was afraid of speaking in front of the Congress and apparently didn't have a very strong voice. I thought to myself when I read that, I said, maybe we should go back to that. Just write it out and we'll read it at home. State of the Union address. President of the United States. Thomas Jefferson had... Anxiety, depression, maybe he's a compulsive man. And look through the lives. I've done this a few years ago. If you want to encourage yourself, look through the lives of all the famous people that have ever lived. See how many of them wound up in mental institutions, had problems with anxiety. Today we would say he was bipolar. These are musicians and artists and presidents, all types of famous people. You see, because we are basically all the same when it comes to flesh and blood. What makes us different is that now we have the spirit of the Lord. Stir up the gift. Stir up the gifts. So let me finish with this. There's a little story of something God shared with me, and I want to share it with you. Some of you know this story. I'm going back maybe close to 40 years ago. And as someone who has had issues over the years, especially my younger years with anxiety, depression, I was thinking about fear. And so back in the days, you know, when you had the strongest concordance and you had to pry it open like this, and it was massive, still is a massive book. Now you have an app, you just tap, tap, and you're there. I'd have all my books all spread out on the kitchen table, writing out all my notes. But I was doing a study, a word study on fear. 
So I was in my Strong's Concordance and I was looking up the word, but I kept noticing that every time I came upon like the fear of man or whatever, I came upon this phrase, the fear of the Lord. And that was catching my attention. After my study, I went to prayer and the Lord spoke to me. And I'm going to paraphrase. This wasn't precisely what he said, but it's the way we would speak now, 40 years later. He said, you can downsize your fears. Everybody's talking about minimizing and minimalists. I know a guy literally, not that he can't afford it. He's done pretty well in life. He literally has one fork, one spoon, and one knife. He lives alone. That's it. This way, what do you got? Only three little utensils to clean. It's kind of easy. But we have so much, and the Lord spoke to me and basically was saying, you can downsize all your fears to just one, the fear of the Lord, which I believe I already had, but this began to open my understanding to that truth. That you can take all of your fears, and this is in a manner of speaking now, you could take all of your fears and narrow down to one. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Well, we are not going to read Psalm 34, but you know that one of my favorite verses has been, because it was one of the first verses that I learned, was, I sought the Lord, and he heard me. It's the same event. Now, keep that in mind. It's the same event. The spitting on the door, the scratching on the door, the acting like he's crazy. I sought the Lord, which that wouldn't be the appearance. That, that's what he did. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Coming from a man who's spitting on his beard and scratching on the door. You see the disparity in our lives? But he won the day. David won the day. And you need to win the day. You need to minimize your fears to just one. Let me just quickly read some of these scriptures and I'll finish. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That was in Psalm 19, verse 9. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Look at what we got. We have people on universities who don't know what they're talking about. People teaching classes on universities don't know what they're talking about. There's no fear of the Lord. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. That's Psalm 111, verse 10. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's what we heard today in prayer. The foolish Americans who said, God will not be in our schools. The Ten Commandments will not be in our courts of justice, in our halls of justice. We won't have these things. And look at the whirlwind. Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the perverse mouth do I hate. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. That's knowing God. Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days. You say, I want to live a long life. Fear of the Lord will prolong your days, but the years of the wicked shall be cut short. By the way, of all the incredible things we're reading, how many people just simply dropping dead? I'm not saying that they're wicked. I'm just simply saying that the book says, which is enough for me, the book says the fear of the Lord will prolong your days. Proverbs 14, 26, and the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. And his children shall have a place of refuge. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom before honor is humility. Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord tends to life and he that have it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. 
Proverbs 22, verse 4, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. And then finally, Isaiah 33, 6. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. This is a good way to end. Wisdom and knowledge. What we need as Christians, as Americans, or even across the globe, we need wisdom. We don't need any more rancor. We got enough of that. We don't need any more people saying, you know what, you're just stupid. And what are you? Angry? Intelligence. Wisdom. That will win the day. Quickly. I'm playing chess with a young man. He made a bad move, and I made a good move, and he was in danger of losing the game. He said to me, this is the part where I take the table and turn it upside down. <laughs> I said, and what? Prove that you're an idiot? You don't win chess by upturning the table, walking away, kicking chairs. You still lost. What you do is you go home and you read Bobby Fischer's book or you read a book and you come back and you get better and better at the game. We are playing, in a matter of speaking, we're playing the game of life. And what's going to get us through is the fear of the Lord, which transfers itself in one area into wisdom, into wisdom. So let me just say this one last time and I'll finish. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. The men of Issachar were men who came into Israel at a time that was very chaotic and bad. And it says, but they knew what to do. <laughs> you may look at me and think, this guy's really either very proud or arrogant or crazy. I know what to do. I really do. I said, what is it? I'm doing it. Amen. This is what America needs. They need the word of God. Amen. Not just a motivational speech. You guys are great. Today's going to be a great day. Come on, get up and say it. Kiss each other. Say this. Kiss yourself. <laughs> we need to hear the word of God. And Christians need to go home and read it throughout the week and pray. And then we come and we sing the wondrous works of God as you have in the Psalms. They're all songs. You put those three together and that's what we need. You say, that sounds too simple. No, because God then intervenes and God moves, as Cowper wrote, in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. That's what we need. Wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. So today, you come in here just like everybody else. Could be heavy laden. Read Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. Amen. Let's go before the Lord. And let's practice 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your care upon him. That Greek word underscoring care means anxiety. Cast it upon him. For he cares for you. Now, here it is. What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. In God I will trust his word. God's word says he cares for you. You must decide whether you actually believe that. You must decide, do I really believe this? Do I really believe that it matters to God what becomes of my life? Do I really believe that? And if you do, then you're going to take your anxiety and you're going to give it to the one and the only one that can really solve your problems by his divine intervention. Huh? We're in such a mess that we need God to turn this ship around. Preach the word and pray. Sing unto the Lord. But my question is, do you really believe that God actually cares for you? Do you really believe it? Everything about your life, that it actually matters to God? 
Do you really believe it? And if you do, you're going to find it easier to take your anxieties and give them to God. And I told you many times during this message, we all have them. I didn't say I have them, but you don't. I didn't say you have them, but I don't. I said we all have them. But do you believe that God really cares about your life? And if you say, I do, then you could take those anxieties, the ones that pop up, and sometimes they pop up out of nowhere, and you just hand them to God and say, God, what time I am afraid. I will trust in thee. In God, I will praise his word, believe his word. So, Father, we come before you today in Jesus' name. We looked at a man who one day was a hero and came to Goliath in the name of the Lord. And just a short while later, he's fearful and acting his way out of a situation, which ultimately he gave the credit to you anyway. And this is us. It's all of us. Help us, God, in this hour to stand strong. Help those who waver in their faith to not waver. Help those who have a little bit of doubt to have no doubt that God cares for his own, his people. And for us to make it individual, God cares for me. If his eye is on the sparrow, I know he's watching me. Now, Lord, we take our concerns and our anxieties and our depressions and our obstacles. There's so many things on this narrow path that just get in the way and make us weary. Then we go to Matthew 11:28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. This is such, to me anyway, such a welcome invitation. Come to me, I'll give you rest. And just as I am, without one plea, I come to thee, I come to thee. So we bless your name today. Lord, I just ask you to start to remove the fears, anxieties, depressions, weariness, grief, problems. Well, the problems may not go away, but the attitude and the way we face them can be changed by an act of our will and your touch, the touch of your hand. Touch us today, God. Touch your people today. Let them leave this sanctuary and have the shine put back on them and the filth of the world taken off of them. Let them be able to say, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. For this we give you praise. For this we give you glory. For this we give you honor. Remind us throughout the week to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. And then remind us to love one another. And we give you all the praise, give you all the glory, and give you all the honor today in Jesus' name. Can you say amen with me today? Amen. amen.